This is the ministry from Sovereign Grace Reformed Church in Tiverton, Devon, United Kingdom. Okay, so we're going to be talking about the sanctification of the believer. And sanctification is um, often a cause of some confusion for believers. And um, there's more to say about this subject than I, I could possibly say in one evening. And there'll be lots that you're saying, well, why didn't he say that and why didn't he say this? But what I'm trying to try and get across to you is the gist, if you like, of what the scripture says about the subject of the believer's sanctification. And the first thing that we need to understand about sanctification is that in the New Testament, for the most part, um, it is presented as something that believers already possess. Um, for example, in Acts 2, verse 32, it says, And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. In other words, in the New Testament, um, sanctification is spoken of not as a process, but as a once-for-all act of God most of the time they have to be careful but for m most in most cases um, sanctification is spoken of not as a process but as a once for all act of God a one-off never to be repeated aspect of the believers salvation that we should consider in a similar way to calling to the new birth to justification and adoption one of the salvation acts of God so just as we are justified uh, we are sanctified just as we are adopted we are sanctified and so on and we won't understand sanctification and we'll always struggle with it and I think this is the reason people do until we grasp that first meaning of sanctification Every Christian is already sanctified. It is part of our Christian identity. Paul, when writing to the Corinthians, let me remind you, the church at Corinth was a disaster. Um, it was notable for its lack of holiness. It was riven with scandal. Um, there was sexual immorality you could hardly imagine. Um, and yet despite their appalling behaviour he says this in, in 1 Corinthians 6.11 he says and such were some of you but ye are washed but ye are sanctified but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of, of our God but ye are sanctified you see if he was referring to their um, present walk with God then that would be a bit difficult to process he's talking about the fact that legally, judicially um, they are sanctified 
because in the same way that they are justified. So this disorderly church, some of the, some of the members of the Corinthian church were even using prostitutes. They were going to law against each other. They were fornicating. They were misusing the Lord's Supper. They were showing off in the meetings. They, and, they were, and they were permitting one sexual sin, which even the pagans around them frowned upon and would frown upon. And yet this church is addressed by Paul in verse 2 of chapter 1, unto the church of God which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. I, I use this extreme example to emphasize the point that in the first place, sanctification is a one-off event. He calls them saints, hagios, the separated ones, regarded as um, holy and separated from ordinary use and set apart for God's use. That is the position of every individual believer if they're truly born again. And in his letters, Paul will always, uh, will all, nearly always, greets the churches as those who are hagios, that's saints, those who are saints. Not a special group of people within the church, but every single individual member of the church is a saint. A, a separated one, a hagios, separated, consecrated sanctified ones and it's not just Paul Peter does the same in his epistles he he considers those um, Christians who he, he considers Christians those who are already sanctified 1 Peter 1 verse 2 elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the spirit or hagiosmos the consecration the separation of the spirit. It's true for every single individual church member. They are saints. They are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification. So the first meaning of sanctification, the most common meaning in the New Testament is that sanctification is a decisive, consecrating, separating purifying, holifying, not that there's such a word as that, um, action that occurs at the beginning of the Christian life. And that's the first thing that we need to understand. And Romans 6 is very helpful in our understanding of this. And um, before we look at it a bit, let me emphasise what I'm about to say. And what I've already said, this, that, it, that this is true of every single believer. You may consider yourself a, a, a new Christian, you may consider yourself a weak Christian, you may consider yourself a struggling Christian, but what, we're, we're, what we have said and what we're about to say applies to every Christian equally. We are all sanctified, we are all saints, we are all set apart for holy use. 
And I, th- I find that encouraging. In Romans 6, Paul addresses this question in verse 1 of chapter 6. He says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? You see, what Paul had been saying, he'd been exalting the grace of God and how grace overcomes sin and that that leads to God's glory and praise going to God. And so some bright spark um, probably put his hand up and said, um, well, if, that, if that's the case, let's sin as much as we can. Let's sin more and more because the more we sin, the more praise God will get. And then in response to that objection, in verse 2, Paul uses the, a term uh, which in the, in, in, in the Greek is this, one of the sort of strongest um, idioms that can be used to, to object against something. Um, and I think the King James translators thought, well, what, what's the equivalent in English? What's the most strongest phrase that we have? Um, and they chose God forbid. In fact, the word God is not there at all in the Greek, but they're trying to, to, to mirror the, um, the phraseology, the strong, desire, the strong denial. This was, Paul was horrified at the suggestion that a Christian should deliberately sin so that God's grace could come into operation and then God would get more praise. No way, Paul says. May it never be. God forbid. How shall we, he says in verse 2, that are dead to sin live any longer therein? How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein and that's what I want to emphasize here at this point that is the first aspect of sanctification that we need to get our heads straight about is that the Christian all Christians are those that are dead to sin there's a lot you need to hang on because there's a lot more yet to say but just try and get this foundational understanding Paul uses the idea of death to explain that just as a dead man used to live in in the realm of the living, used to live in the world, was active in the world, no doubt had a home and a family and had a job, uh, was subject to the laws of the world, was subject to the laws of physics, in nature and so on, that person has, who has now died is no lo- longer living in the sphere of this life and is no longer subject to the, to the powers of this world or to any of its rules. It's no longer subject to the laws of gravity or physics. The tie has been fundamentally broken and that dead person's gone to another realm altogether. And specifically, he says that that old life, that old world, that person used to live in, was a world of sin. But now the Christian who has died to sin no longer lives in the sphere of sin, no longer lives in the world of sin, if you like. And so Paul is teaching that every Christian, 
Everyone who is saved by grace right at the start of their Christian life has experienced a decisive, radical separation from the power of sin and from slavery to sin. Now if we all understood that, if every Christian understood that, we, our churches would be completely different. It's a failure to understand this that holds so many back from a fulfilling Christian life. You see, in Romans 6, Paul gives two um, outcomes, two possible outcomes or two um, options or, or prospects, if you like. You either have um, death in sin or you either have death to sin. Those are the two options every individual in life has. Death in sin or death to sin. And if you reject the gospel, if you reject Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, you remain slaves to sin and you, you will die in sin. Um, Romans 6 goes through it in great detail and we won't do the same but if you choose the option of death in sin then um, Romans 6 teaches that you remain a slave or a servant to sin um, just look at verse 6 um, just the last sentence the last phrase that henceforth we should not serve sin and then there's verse 16 um, know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey his servants ye are to whom ye obey um, in other words if by nature we are slaves to sin we are bond slaves to sin or servants to sin and then sin controls our bodies verse 12 let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. If we're, an, if we're an unbeliever, sin has control over our body. Um, if, you're not a, if you're an unbeliever, you are controlled by lust. Verse 12, the end of verse 12, we just read it. Um, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Um, if you're an unbeliever, you're, the various members or body parts that you have are instruments of sin. Verse 13, neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. Um, verse 19, um, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to, un and to iniquity, unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. So the unbeliever, you, your arms, your legs, your head, your feet, all of it, all the different parts of you individually, uh, are instruments for sin. They're tools for sin. Um, in short, Paul teaches that sin has dominion over us. Verse 14. 
for sin for the Christian shall not have dominion over you, implying that if you're not a Christian, then sin does have dominion, power over you. That's the reality of, a, of an unbeliever's life. And that is you and I before we became a Christian. But after we, became a, we become a Christian, or as we become a Christian, if you like, what happens? Well, Romans 6 teaches us what happens. Um, what happens is that we become dead to sin. So as, as I say, we're either dead in sin or we die to sin. And Paul explains what it means to be dead to sin in this chapter. Um, the first thing is that, well, as I've, I've, as I've emphasised, we are, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? We'll come back to that a bit as to what that means. But first of all, he says that our old man has been crucified and the body of sin destroyed. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that's Jesus, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. So our old man, our old life has been crucified and the body of sin has been destroyed. Now we'll come back to what that means, but if we think of body as a, um, we think of academic bodies, don't we, or, or, or institutions, really what it's trying to say is that the, the, the collective power almost like the institution of sin um, has been destroyed because as we'll come on to see um, sin remains indwelling in the believer and then Paul says that for the Christian there is freedom from sin verse 7 for he that is dead is freed from sin isn't that wonderful he that, for he that is dead is freed from sin. And also, in addition to that, the Christian becomes alive to God. Verse 10 and 11. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then our body parts, our arms and legs and head and all the rest of it, instead of becoming instruments for sin, they now become instruments for righteousness. Verse 13. Um, the middle of it. But yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. Sorry, I meant to read 19 there, not 14. Verse 19, I speak after the manner of men, because of the infirmity of your flesh. This is the change that happens. Look at this. For as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness, and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now, yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. 
And then, instead of being under the dominion and power of sin, verse 14, which I read by mistake just then, um, says that we are under the dominion of grace. Verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you, but ye are not under the law, but under grace. And then also in verse 22, the Christian produces spiritual fruits of holiness, which result in everlasting life. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Now, that, dear friends, is a, is a 100 mile an hour description of what it means to become a Christian. It's an absolute radical, um, one-off separation, sanctification, dying to sin and becoming alive to God. And that's what we need, first of all, to be clear about before we go on to understand other aspects of this. We're so prone and so used to um, talking about sanctification as the process of becoming holy that we forget to begin at the beginning. The beginning of sanctification is what has happened to us, of who we are in Christ, that we are sanctified ones. Not some of us, not the the really keen ones or, or, the, or, or the, um, the ones that are spend all their time reading the Bible everyone the weakest of us the youngest of us in the Lord and even chronologically all of us this is, this is true of all of us um, we are in Christ we're sanctified ones we are dead to sin and Paul starts here as the argument for why the Christian should not sin. Because we are dead to sin. He's not saying we can't, we can't sin or that it's impossible for a Christian to sin as we're going to see. But he's saying, um, God forbid that the Christian should sin. The whole, New, uh, the whole New Testament speaks of the Christian, every Christian in this way. Peter, the Apostle Peter, speaking of our Lord, says, um, who his own self, this is 1 Peter 2.24, if you want to look at it, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. That's exactly the same teaching, isn't it? We are dead to sins. And, and the Apostle John said exactly the same. In 1 John 3, 9, he says, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Well, that's a difficult verse. And we know that John can't mean that the Christian never sins because he talks about... Um, being a liar if you say you have no sin. So he obviously didn't mean that, but what he means, he must mean, in, in the light of the other things he says, is, is the same as what Paul is teaching, that a Christian is no longer under the power and dominion of sin. So then, to sum up the whole of the New Testament, 
Sanctification is a decisive, irreversible separation from sin, which leads to a desire for and a commitment to a holy life. A decisive deliverance from the power and defilement of sin. And that is the first and most common meaning of sanctification in the New Testament. If you don't believe me, you can look it all up and count the verses. It's far more than in terms of a process. In the New Testament terminology, sanctification overwhelmingly has to do with the status that we enjoy in Christ. It emphasises what we are and what we have. That's Paul's method. That's interesting, isn't it? You want to get people to become more holy, what do you do? You remind them of who they are. You remind them of what being a Christian is. You remind them of their status. In addition to this, and flowing from this, um, primary meaning, which I've emphasised, I think, um, sanctification is presented also uh, as personal holiness in accordance with the sanctified status that we have in Christ. In other words, because we are separated, because we are consecrated to God, because we are no longer under the rule of sin, the Christian is to make every effort to be what they truly are, to live um, in the status that they have. You, you know, I can remember times, um, well, perhaps more, I was thinking of my parents, but more perhaps when I was at school. I went to one of these old-fashioned boarding schools and we, sometimes we were allowed out in the town and um, we were told we must wear our school uniform and, and to remember the school that we represented. We were to behave according to our status. And in a sense, that is how the Christian desires holiness because we know who we are in Christ. We are separated and consecrated to God. And therefore we make every effort to be what we truly are. Um, and in addition to that, of course, as we all know too, too well, um, that although the rule and the reign of sin is broken, the Christian has to strive to live um, in the reality of, of all that Paul teaches, but also in the reality that sin indwells, continues to indwell the believer. And we'll talk about, about that in a second. So our consecrated status must be evident in real life. It's no good as um, living like some of these Corinthian Christians did, bringing shame on the Christian gospel and just saying, well, I'm consecrated, I'm, I'm separated to God, I'm sanctified. There has to be a living out of that, a living out of the reality of that calling. And so, although sin as a power is con conquered in our lives and defeated, we're dead to that spiritual realm, sin remains within the believer 
And that, that means that we have to be constantly vigilant. We have to be vigilant against the encroachment of sin. And we have to live out what God has worked in us. You see, the Apostle John, the same Apostle John who wrote, um, everyone who is born of God does not commit sin, is the same Apostle John who wrote, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We know this to be true, don't we? That we have this struggle with sin. But we need to understand what the New Testament says about that. And I, I hope I'll be able to get that across. And because we are under a duty, an obligation to live in the real world according to the status that we have, um, the New Testament puts obligations on us, it, put, it puts imperatives on us to do certain things. Paul teaches that those who are sanctified have a responsibility to cleanse themselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Peter, in a similar way, says, But as, as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversations. So I don't want you to misunderstand me today. Although I'm saying the main, re the main definition of sanctification is something which God does for us and gives us a status, we're separated, we're dead to sin, there is this aspect, this balanced teaching in the New Testament where we as individual Christians have to work out in everyday life the reality of who we are in Christ. We are under an obligation to be holy in all manner of conversation. Conversation doesn't mean talk, it means um, behaviour, interactions. Now I think this is a remarkably, although it, that sounds daunting, doesn't it? It's actually really encouraging. Because Paul or, Paul or neither any of the apostles would ever, ever speak to unbelievers in that way. They would never say to unbelievers, um, you must be holy. They would never say to unbelievers, cleanse yourselves from all the filthiness of the flesh, because it would be a complete waste of time. On the contrary, Paul spoke of unbelievers as being dead in trespasses and sins, with no agency, no ability whatsoever to be holy or to cleanse themselves or to take responsibility for their sanctification in that way. But the Christian, and this is what I want to encourage you with tonight, the Christian, you and I, in cooperation with the work of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, we have agency and a duty and a power to live the whole... Feel free to contact us at Sovereign Grace Church in Tiverton. Email us at grace2seekers at gmail.com. That's grace2seekers at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can visit our website at 
www.sovereigngracereformedchurch.co.uk